And I'll be reading from Esther chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is a month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued by a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of God. Good afternoon. All right, we're going to be in the book of Esther. Uh, how ironic is it that all that is happening in all the stuff that's happening in Ukraine and we're in Esther. Now, when I read Esther, I'm like, oh my goodness, this stuff is not only history, but it's also happening now. Today, we're, we're going to be looking at uh, end of chapter two and all of chapter three. So we're going to speed up a little bit. And I'm going to have to confess to you, usually I would love to go 30 minutes, 35 minutes, but I realize when narratives I'm going to go 35, 40 minutes. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness ahead. I realize I try so hard to narrow down this, but in order for us to get through the narrative, uh, we'll probably go like 40 minutes uh, for, for a while. But, but good stuff. I'm not going to waste your time. Good stuff. All right? Amen? A few people are like, okay, I'm out next week. You'll be all right. Five minutes. Um, let me just quickly review, catch you up if you're just joining us. We're going to walk through the book of Esther all the way to Easter. Hopefully we'll be done by Easter to be able to do a new series. But Esther chapter 1, chapter 2, um, just a quick update. Esther is an orphan, right? The, the author tells us Esther is an orphan. She is uh, raised by her cousin, a man named Mordecai. And they're both part of royal Jewish family, right? We know uh, Mordecai is a Benjaminite and perhaps uh, a, a great grandson of Saul the king, the first king of, of, of Israel, right? And at the end of chapter one, the queen of Persia is sent away by a foolish decision by King Xerxes. They're, they're living in Persia under a superpower. They don't have their own nation at this time. And, and what's happening is the king of Persia throws this party, decides that he wants to see his wife, and he wants to show off his wife, and his wife says, no, I'm not going to be your entertainment. So the king, instead of apologizing to his wife, decides to choose a new queen, foolishly. That's chapter one. Chapter two, Esther, through different events and, and wonderful movement of God, she becomes the new queen. That was sort of what we were talking about last week. And we're going to pick up the story from chapter 2, verse 19. If you have your Bibles, just open it there, and we'll just walk through the story. So by chapter 2, verse 19, Esther has now been well established as a new queen of Persia. This orphan girl, Jewish orphan girl, becomes the queen of Persia, a superpower at the time. And her cousin Mordecai has been given a governmental position at the city gates. Verse 19, it says, sitting at the gate. Mordecai was sitting at the gate, okay? That phrase does not simply mean Mordecai was just hanging out at the gate. No, the sitting at the gate implies that Mordecai somehow has rose up to the ranks to be a local judge. You see, throughout the ancient Near East, the gate was often where people brought their complaints. 
There, there are problems. There is a conflict between an owner and a lender, right? And an official or a group of men were there at the gate to help mediate or to give solution to, to, to these conflicts. So Mordecai, we know that he's, by sitting at the gate, he's now a very important person, part of the official, official men. And although we're not told, the author doesn't tell us how Mordecai got there, uh, it's most likely... It has something to do with Esther rising to power and being able to use her influence to give Mordecai this kind of position. Um, And so Mordecai is now an official at the gate. While serving at the gate, hears of a plot. Some men who are part of King Xerxes' inner circle wants the king dead. They want the king dead, so they have this plot. And in fact, history tells us King Xerxes had a long list of enemies. Right, because of his unwise choices and decisions. In fact, Xerxes was eventually, not at this time, but eventually he was murdered on his own bed by one of his men because he could not keep his hands off of his men's wife. So right, he was murdered. That's how he, his, his life sort of ends. However, here in chapter 2, in our text, Xerxes' life is spared by Mordecai's decisive action. Right, So Mordecai, hearing this plot, finding this plot, immediately goes to his cousin Esther, who's the queen of Persia at the time. And with the findings, Esther tells the king Xerxes of the plot, and immediately the two men are executed. And Mordecai's deeds is recorded. That's what the scripture says. Yet what's really interesting is the king does nothing about honoring Mordecai's action. No medal, no new position, no gifts, not even a small recognition. Right? That's, that's interesting because it was very common for kings to, to honor act of kindness, act of royalty, to make sure they keep the power, right? But there's nothing here that says Mordecai was rewarded. In fact, in chapter 3, it's not Mordecai that's given a higher position. It's his enemy, Haman, that rises to power. I mean, could you imagine how Mordecai might have felt? I mean, we work, we have relationships, we have, you know, you do something for someone, right? Could you imagine? You do something really, really important at work. Say your boss is in a bind and you have to really come through for your boss and you stay up all night, work on this project, and the, and the project is smashing success. You go back to work, you're hoping that, you're, you know, at least they'll buy lunch or coffee or, or some kind of bonus, but they do nothing. Could you imagine how Mordecai would have felt? Here he is risking his own life to whistle blow on some very powerful men. These men were very powerful. If Mordecai was caught, you know, telling the king of the plot, he could have been killed. Yet again, King Xerxes does nothing to honor his deeds. And I'm sure many of us can relate to how Mordecai may have felt here, right? Anyone feeling underappreciated at work, perhaps at home? I have two young daughters. Every Saturday, they want something delicious. We've made it a wrong habit of taking them out to these delicious breakfast places. I take them to this really, really fancy pancake house and buy them like a 20,001 pancakes. I've never eaten, you know, when I was growing up. And they're complaining. They're like, Dad, 
I want McDonald's. I'm like, dude, McDonald's $3. This is $20. Don't you, don't you know what we're doing, right? I, you know, as, as, as a father, I feel very underappreciated all the time. Um, perhaps you feel underappreciated at work by your boss, underappreciated maybe by your parents. You know, you know so, so really there's, there's this feeling that we can understand what Mordecai is going through. But what about with God? In our relationship with God, is there a time when you feel like God doesn't recognize your obedience? And I'm not talking about this idea of entitlement. I did something, God, I want something. But, but maybe not out loud, but underneath your breath, as you walk with Jesus, as you have lived your life as a Christian, you may have muttered words of frustration or even bitterness. Right? Because as you walk with Jesus, there will be times when you and I will feel like you've done, you and I, we've done our best to honor God and, and, and try to do the right thing. Yet God seems silent or things doesn't get better, things get worse. There are times we're tempted to believe God doesn't really care whether we do the right thing or God doesn't see God doesn't really acknowledge or honor our obedience. Perhaps you've approached your workplace with desire to do your best to honor God, not cut corners, not backstab your coworkers, right? To do your best to love your coworkers, even your boss who may be very difficult to work with. Yet it seems like the more you give, the more you want to honor God in your workplace, things get harder. Your boss just demands more. Your coworkers backstab you. Perhaps you're getting older and you, you feel like you've done all you can to honor God in area of relationships. You have kept yourself holy, pure, and you've obeyed God in these areas. Yet as every year passes by, the idea of meeting someone seems further and further. We have a lot of older singles here that may feel that way. Whatever those feelings may be, I think these are the feelings we could relate to. And I'm sure Mordecai may have felt frustrated, even bitter towards God as, as he's not rewarded, as he's not recognized. Haman rises to the power. Yet as the story unfolds, right? this is the beauty of the book of Esther, as the story unfolds, we see God's greater timing and purpose. Right? Later, this incident right, what Mordecai did in chapters 219 to the end, right, saving the king, and the fact that the Mordecai was not rewarded will play a critical part of God's redemptive work for his people. By not being instantly rewarded like Mordecai wanted, the reward will be deferred to even more critical time in the story. Timing is everything. In fact, the scripture reminds us over and over again that God that we serve will always honor those whose hearts are blameless towards him, right? Friends, our obedience to God, our desire to move in faith, it will be rewarded in due time, right? And remember, God sees, unlike what we believe, God does see your faithfulness. God does see your obedience. And again, God will honor your faithfulness in due time. Second Chron Chronicles 16.9, a very well-known verse. It says this, for 
for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, throughout the world and earth, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards Him. That's scripture. So that means, friends, you may feel underappreciated by your boss. You may feel underappreciated by your kids. You may feel underappreciated by your spouse, even your spouse. But God sees your faithfulness. Others may not see it, but he does. And, and when we continue to trust and move in faith and obedience, even though that's hard, even though that's difficult, even though you may feel like you're the only one that's following the rules, He will honor you. Amen? That's the first observation from the text. God honors Mordecai's faithfulness in His perfect timing. We'll see that in chapter 4 and 5. Back to the story in the opening verses of chapter, now we're in chapter 3, right? After this event, now in chapter 3, we are introduced to a new character of the story, and his name is Haman, right? He is a Agagite. Everyone say Agagite. Okay, Agagites sound like a strange ancient name, but for the Jews, Agagites were well known. They were the descendants of Amaleks. Okay, Amaleks were people who did not fear the Lord. In fact, throughout Israel's history, from the very beginning, they were a staunch enemy state of Israel. They did not fear the Lord. They mocked God's people. In fact, it was these Amaleks who came against God's people when Israelites exited out of Egypt and they were utterly vulnerable. Without an army, without much to take care for, these Amaleks came taunting the name of Yahweh and made really life, life really difficult. And because of their wicked actions, God promised Moses in Exodus 17 that he would completely erase the memory of Amalekites under heaven and on earth. Also that they would be at war with them from generation to generation. God said this to Israelites, right? In fact, 1 Samuel 15, another very famous story, when King Saul came to power, God told King Saul to lead the Israel's army against the Amaleks, and, and the command was very clear, you are to go and destroy everything. You're not to take anything from that land, from that people. Complete destruction was God's command to King Saul. But what did King Saul do? He chose to keep because he feared the people's voice, because he saw some of the goods, the cattle, and the things that they had, he decided to go against God's command and keep the king alive and keep some of their livestocks. And when Samuel confronted Saul, right, he made a bunch of excuses. And that's when God told Samuel to go prepare, go, go prepare to anoint a replacement of King Saul, was King David. So, so really, this, this conflict that we see in chapter 3 between Mordecai and Haman is not simply personal conflict, right? This is an unresolved conflict that's been going on for generations upon generation, right? It is a result of continued disobedience on the part of Israelites for generations. It's not just King Saul. 
It's not just Joshua. It's really generations of disobedience. God made it very clear, hey, you're not to do business with these people. You're not to actually befriend them. You're not to welcome them. In fact, you're to completely destroy these people because they are evil. So here's another important observation that we can glean from the text. Is this, if our continued obedience will one day be honored by God, right? Mordecai did that, God honors him. Our continued disobedience will one day birth greater chaos and destruction, not only in, in our own lives, but in the lives of those that are around us. Let me put it this way. When we fail to deal with areas of sin in our lives, whether that's lust, greed, mistrust, anger, pride, or something else, something else that you know that God made it very clear to you, Sangmin, you got to work on this area. And we don't work on it. We ignore it, we hide it away, we make excuses for it. They'll eventually bring greater chaos and destruction in our lives. That's the unfortunate reality of sin, right? When we fail to deal with them and continue to hide them away, it's cancerous. I said it many times here before, right? Or this, it's been said many times before, right? Sin takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Again, sin takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. You know, over the years of pastoral ministry, I've seen marriages being ruined. I've seen, I've seen families break apart. I've seen churches close down. All because of undealt sins, right? That, that people just ignored and, and hid away. And this was why God was adamant about complete destruction of Amalek's. So friends, another encouragement or another observation that we ought to glean from the text is that we need to bring these areas of hidden sins, bring them to the healer for God is gracious. As we have saying, God is gracious. God is merciful. He is quick to forgive. But I tell you what, sins will not simply go away. Sins will not just solve themselves. Right? Generations of disobedience has brought great calamity on God's people in our text, and it will bring terrible things in our lives. So that's, we got to take sin seriously. You know, Scripture over and over again reminds us that sin is dangerous. We, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's little things here, little greed here, little anger here. Little mistrust here, and then eventually, before you know it, it just causes havoc in our lives and the lives of those that love that love us. So back to the story. Chapter three, verse two. Mordecai, for whatever reason, refuses to pay homage to Haman. And commentators have debated for years and years. They don't know if it's a religious reason or personal reason, right? It's it's just really at this point guessing game. But what's clear is that under no circumstance, Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. That's very clear. People have tried to encourage him. People have tried to tell him, hey, you got to get in line or you're going to be in big trouble. The king made a decree for everyone to bow down to Haman. you got to do this. 
And Mordecai's refusal, for whatever reason, it could be religious, it could be personal, he may not have respected Haman. For whatever reason, his refusal drives Haman crazy. Haman is, is just cannot believe that this Jewish man will not bow down to him. Mad enough, crazy enough to want to wipe out all of the Jews from, from the empire. So Haman, come, Haman comes up with a plan in verse 7 in order to determine the time for the genocide of the Jews. He consults the purr. It says the purr or the lot. You see, this idea of casting the lot literally means throwing some sort of dice. Right? An ancient lot was used not for gambling like today, or not to play board games, but to discern the will of God. This was a very common practice, not only for pagan nations, but also for Israelites. Right? Um, by legitimate use of the lot, Yahweh, Israel's God, would also make his will known. Right? For example, when Joshua casted lots before the Lord to learn how to assign the land to the various tribes, that was, that was Joshua 18.6. Over 70 times in Old Testament, God's people used the lot to decide, determine, to hear from the Lord. Right? In the New Testament, it ends when the Holy Spirit comes after the Pentecost, but before the Pentecost, this was a common practice. So Haman is casting the law thinking that he is hearing from his own God. What he doesn't realize is that Yahweh is going to speak. Right? We see again the, the beauty of the book of Esther is God is not even mentioned once. But we see the movement of God. Haman is thinking, I'm going to hear from my own gods. And God says, no, I'm going to speak over that. Right? Haman may have cast the law to secure a date to accomplish his evil agenda against God's people, yet we see it's Yahweh who speaks. In fact, verse 13, the passage that was read by our brother Daniel, it says, When the letters were sent to all the provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews in one day, which was the date? Which was the day? It says the 13th day of the 12th month, which happens to be what? Eve of Passover event. You see, Passover, if you, if you don't know Passover, is a celebration of God's rescue of his own people from the hands of Egyptians. Ever since Egyptians were able to leave Pharaoh and Egypt, God told them, remember my work, remember my rescue by celebrating Passover. So the very day and the very event, right? Passover is the very day and the very event that constituted the, the finding of God's covenantal people as a nation. Really, the Passover is the event that God's people became a nation under God's covenant. By making the lot, you, you see this, by making the lot fall on the very day, very eve of Passover, it's almost like God is hinting at his people. Right? Even though Persians have no idea, even though Haman thinks, okay, i got to wait 12 months, whatever. But God's people, God, is, God may be hinting at God's people saying, will you trust me? It's a Passover again. Remember what I've done, and I'll do it again. So with the date set, for, for Haman, the only thing left to do is get approval from the king. So he goes to the king, by King Xerxes, with an offer that king cannot refuse. 
right? So Haman offers the king 10,000 talents of silver, which is a significant budget for their military, right? Which is a significant amount of money, especially for a kingdom that has been depleted by a devastating defeat in the hands of the Greeks. Remember, Xerxes, King Xerxes took their army to go to war against the Greeks, and historians tell us they faced this this great Greek army, and they were utterly defeated. So they were out of money, and Haman comes and says, King, if you let me do this, I'm going to pay you 10,000 talents of silver. And in return, he tells the king, all he wants to do is get rid of people that are not following, that are following different set of rules. And verse 10, of course, this king, I mean, we know this king by now. He is not a wise leader. He does not break character. We're hoping, wow, he will step in and finally do the right thing. No, he's foolish in chapter 1, he's foolish in chapter 2, and he's foolish again in chapter 3. He doesn't ask Haman what people. He's going to annihilate a whole group of people, and he doesn't even ask Haman what people, right? All he hears is that he's going to get 10,000 talents of silver. And that's enough for him, right? So he takes his signet ring and he hands it to Haman. That's how foolish this king is. Kings did not hand over their signet ring to someone else to sign, right? You don't do that. Even like, you know, in Korea, you have those stamps, those personal tojangs, like those things. Do not hand it over to anybody, right? That's a stupid you know, decision, okay? Look at the king. He's just giving away his signet ring. And again, verse 12 to verse 15, immediately a decree is sent to every province in its own script, every people in, their, in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Xerxes and, healed, and sealed with the king's signet ring. And, and chapter 3 ends with Haman and King Xerxes sharing a drink, laughing, while the whole city of Susa is thrown into great confusion and chaos. Those are the words. Susa was thrown into confusion and chaos. Here's the final observation. This is the final thing I want to highlight from our text. And this is really relevant because this is concerning leadership or lack thereof. You see, when poor leadership is exercised, whether it's at work, whether it's in a nation, whether it's an organization, whether it's in a church, it's the people that suffer. We see that in the text. We also see that what's happening in Ukraine right now, the war that's going on in Ukraine, right? Leadership either enhances people's lives or it destroys people's lives. Again, we're seeing it every day on the news, right? The reality of poor leadership versus the benefit of great leadership, right? The crisis in Ukraine has uncovered two very different leaders for us. Right? On one side, right, we see Putin, the leader of Russia. On the other side, we see Zelensky. Right? We've seen Zelensky over and over again in different, different speeches and different meetings. And, and, and we are seeing the horrifying impact of terrible leadership. Right? We see when a leader makes a decision based on his own ambition or ideology or idea of what Russia should be, and without concern for how this will impact his own people and the economy and just everything, we see the terrifying result. You attack a sovereign nation thinking that's actually a nation. 
Whereas on the other side, we see leadership that will stand in the face of great danger and lead and rally people. What's really interesting is Putin has been leader for a generation of gen for, for a very long time. Zelensky was an actor. And what he did was he, he was actually, uh, he was in a TV show, a popular TV show, as acting as a president. And he became the real president. And people really laughed and said, Zelensky can never lead our country. But guess what? Dude, every day I log on to YouTube and watch President Zelensky speak, and I am pumped. I'm like, this is leadership. I, I'm just challenged, right? It's, it's amazing. And, and, and really, for any of us, it's not hard to spot good leadership, right? We, we don't see it too many, in too many places, but when we see it, you know, it's, it's not hard to spot, right? Good leaders have integrity. They have empathy. They take responsibility and welcome accountability, they're more than willing to listen to others, right, and communicate well with those who are under their care, right? That's good leadership, basics of good leadership. Whereas poor leaders lack integrity, lack empathy, they blame others, they fail to take responsibility, they don't like accountability, and they fail to communicate effectively, right? Or they create propagandas and, and lead people astray. But the question we ought to ask, sure, that's good leadership and bad leadership. But what about great leadership and not just good? Here's what separates good leaders from the great ones. This is, these are the articles and the books. I've just done a quick research of just major traits of great leadership, not simply good. All right, here's the difference. A good leader impresses you with their capacity. Right? We've had these leaders that are just rock stars. They do so much and you're just like, oh, man, I could never be like them. A great leader has the ability to impress you with who you are. In other words, a great leader is selfless and unconditional, right? It's not about showing himself off or showing herself off. They, they help followers to find greatness in themselves. That's the first trait. Second, good leaders will seem bigger than life, while a great leader will be able to be your friend, right? Relate to you and be someone you can trust, a great leader does not need to lord it over you. They don't need to yell. They don't need to threaten you. They can assert their authority without needing to do so all the time. Great leaders see a person as an end in themselves, whereas good leaders see people with numbers, opportunities, means to a greater end, whatever that is. And great leaders have the unique ability to make people believe in themselves. I mean, look at what's happened in Ukraine. President Zelensky has convinced people they could go against these, these, these huge army of Russians. And they're actually doing it. It's crazy. They don't just tell you that you're great, but they make you believe it. Great leaders simply don't turn the ship slightly towards the right direction. They're disruptors. Right? They challenge people to look at things in a fresh new way. They don't just keep the boat going. They like to disrupt and bring new changes. Right? Great leaders change the rules in the process can and will step on people's toes. Right? So great leaders sometimes are not always loved. Great leaders take a personal stake in what is going on. This is also very important. They don't just direct the ship. They, you know, they change the wind and are willing to make personal sacrifice to do so, right? Great leaders are willing to make sacrifices. They don't simply point the way while everybody does the hard work. 
They're the ones who will be pulling each and every soldier out of the trenches into the conflict, into the battle. Great leaders take their head when something goes wrong instead of looking to find a culprit or excuses. And throughout the Old Testament, God's people have been promised of a great leader. God's people, through the prophets, through the narratives, if you, if you read through the Old Testament, if you read through the book of Ruth and Esther and Isaiah and this prophet, Old Testament gives you this anticipation for a great leader. Yet when we survey the scripture, when we read throughout Old Testament, especially like Judges and King and First King, Second King, 90% of the kings, the leaders, are not very good. Majority of the kings we see in Old Testament were actually not, not just bad, they were terrible leaders. Especially kings of Israel and Judah, God's people, one bad king after another. There were a few bright spots, but overall, just terrible leadership. Yet throughout the Old Testament, these authors continue to promise God's people that one day there will be a great leader, a great king, king worthy to serve. A king will rule with mercy and justice, a king who will be the prince of peace, everlasting God. And the book of Isaiah, right? The whole book of Isaiah we're anticipating this promised king from the line of David who is going to be the great leader. Isaiah 9.17 is an example. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. They're saying, Israel, you've been led by terrible kings, but one day you're going to have this great king and you're going to be able to finally see things for as they are. And it says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given. And his mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You see, for Isaiah, this coming king will not just provide solution to the immediate threat of God's people from neighboring nations, but when this great leader arrives, it will bring about a re renewal of creation itself. It's bigger than the nation Israel. Yet, the book of Isaiah and all of Old Testament comes to an end without this king appearing to lead God's people. Like Old Testament, I've said this before, Old Testament is like this great Korean drama. There's a lot of crazy plot, like the, the billionaire falls in love with the coffee barista in the company. They find out they're brothers and sisters or they're related somehow and they can't. You know, Korean, I don't know about K, uh, Korean drama now. I think things have really evolved, but like early 2000, Korean dramas were crazy. Like the plots were amazing. Right? They're like all related and, and love that can't work. This is a great plot, but every Korean drama sort of, they can't, the end cannot justify all this plot because they really can't solve this, right? So it just kind of fizzles out. Like the ending is kind of weird, it just sort of works itself out, or you're just like, that's it? That's what happens at the end? Well, Old Testament is like a great Korean drama in that sense, right? Great buildup, great anticipation, plot and characters but very abruptly ends without a resolution. At least a good resolution that would make you feel happy like you watch this whole drama and you're like, oh, this is good. Yet as the Old Testament gives way to the New Testament, after long years of silence, the biblical story picks up 
and the four Gospels that, that, that launches the New Testament introduces you and I to a man from the line of David named Jesus, the unlike, most unlikely leader or the king. And, and this, this man comes onto the scene and he tells us, I want to teach you a new way to live, a new way to view life, new way to value things. And this teacher, Jesus, he introduces us to values of what he calls an upside-down kingdom. You want to be first, you better be last. You want to live, you got to give away your life. And he shows us, he not only talks about this amazing love, he shows us what it means to truly love someone, what it means to truly care and empathize with those who are hurting. And he was a disruptor. I mean, Jesus was a disruptor, right? He welcomed sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, and it drove people crazy. He confronted religious leaders for their hypocrisy. He went to the temple and turned over tables, saying, this house will be house of prayer. In fact, either people loved this man or wanted him dead. In the end, he didn't simply teach us how to live or how to love. He showed us love by giving away his own life. You see, the greatest lesson that Jesus has given us is the call to give away our lives for others. This is the most important trait of great leadership. And as followers of Jesus... We cannot simply be content with being an effective leader or a good enough leader. No, friends, I want to encourage you. Yes, you may lead a group of six-year-olds, and you may hate that leadership role. You may lead a whole company, maybe a, 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 a small business or home, your father, your mother. But as followers of Jesus, we have to take our leadership seriously. And we have to learn from our teacher and lead like Jesus. And I want to end with this quote by Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen has amazing uh, content. He's an amazing author. And he says this. Uh, Father Henry Nouwen says this. And I quote, The Christian, it's, it's fairly long, but I think it's worth it for us as we wrap up our time. Talking about leadership. The Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant. World loves relevancy. And to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. That is the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. That's the way Jesus led. The great message that we, we have to carry as ministers of God's word and followers of Jesus is that God loves us not because of what we do or accomplish, but because God has created and redeemed us in love and has chosen us to proclaim that love as the true source of our human life. Friends, you and I have our own ideas what it means to be a great leader. You know, I could tell you leading our church for the last five years, I've made plenty of mistakes. You know, I can just remember all the mistakes I've made, and I know I'm not a good enough leader. I know I'm growing in this area. But, but Jesus enters the scene, and Jesus says, what you thought about leadership, what you thought about good leadership, throw that out the window. Let me remind you, if you really want to lead you got to give away your life. If you want to lead, you better be willing to sacrifice. 
And I believe as, as we read the book of Esther and see the action of King Xerxes, I mean, this is not just chapter 3. It's chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. King Xerxes, terrible leader, causing a lot of drama. Yet God is still working through imperfect people like Xerxes and Esther and Mordecai to really reveal, to really point us to a true leader, Jesus. And I believe that's the message of Esther 3. Amen? Let me pray for us. Before I pray, actually, can we um, take a moment to pray about this idea of leadership? Uh, can we take a moment to say, Lord, would you show me uh, my place in, in my life where you want me to steward this leadership well? Uh, would you convict me again, Lord? Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me where I need to grow? What people you have called me to? And how can I really lead like Jesus? Can we spend a few minutes uh, praying together? If you're joining us on YouTube, let's spend a few minutes praying um, for those things. And I'll pray for us. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this idea of leadership. Father, we thank you for challenging us what it means to be a great leader. And Jesus, uh, it is a confession that we don't know how to lead, that we don't know what it means to lead well. So we need wisdom, we need, we need truth, we need you to lead us and reveal to us what it means, God. So Lord, we pray for more of you, pray for wisdom, pray for ideas, God, pray for conviction. Father, we thank you for our time in Esther chapter 2 and chapter 3. Lord, we confess we are more like the king that we see in the story than Jesus. Uh, we are more like uh, even Mordecai than Jesus. But Lord, in our struggle, in our doubt, in our questions, in our mistakes, would you continue to teach us what it means to follow you, Jesus? Would you continue to remind us again so that our faith our maturity in Christ is not just simply about us loving you more, but it's also loving others more. It's also becoming better bosses. It's about becoming more empathetic leaders and teachers and managers and parents. It's about becoming uh, husbands that are humble, wives that are humble. It's about becoming sons and daughters that honor our parents even though it may be hard and difficult it's about bringing flourishing Lord in that garden you called us as, as, with this cultural mandate to, to, to garden the garden and to, to rule and to love the creation Jesus inspire us Holy Spirit remind us once again the qualities of Jesus' leadership and Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that no sin is hidden from you. Thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. If anyone is struggling, if anyone has been dealing with a hidden sin for years and years, I pray for your breakthrough. I pray for your forgiveness. I pray for your healing. If anyone is addicted, if anyone has to rely on something, or someone, I pray that you break that off. Our idea of relationship, our idea of our needs, 
Lord, our hearts are, are, are idol-making factories. I pray you would have mercy. And you did promise, Lord, that there are no temptation that is too great, no temptation that we cannot overcome, for you are with us, you go before us. So encourage us once again, Lord. Give us courage once again, Lord. But we also pray for what's happening in Ukraine as we've been talking about leadership. We pray, Father, for your hand of protection. We pray, Father, for world leaders. It is, it's becoming apparent how important it is to have good leaders. We pray that leaders that would fear you, leaders that would love people, leaders that would care beyond their own country or their own nation. Lord, would you bring quick resolution, quick resolution, Lord. But your will, Lord, not ours. Your will, Lord. Jesus, let me pray. Amen.